morning, church. Hey, listen, just to pick up on what Pastor Todd said, you know, we've, for the next 30 days or so, actually, like, starting, well, at least starting yesterday, we have been terming this Serve Month. Now, if you know anything about the church, you know that this church is constantly serving. So it's not like, oh, this is our month just to serve, and then outside of that, we don't do it. If you go online and you hit our outreach, global and local outreach, there's just so many things that this church is involved in. So why do we have a concentration on this month? Really, it's, it's uh, primarily, my mind, for those who have not yet connected with any of our service projects. And so, man, just a huge point of godly pride uh, for me personally as one of your pastors. Yesterday, between the 300 and something folks that were here to pack, you know, you guys packed over 45,000 meals. 45,000 meals in one day. Yes, and what's really cool about this project, a lot of times, you know, we've done this before where we sent food to faraway places in need, but you may not realize that in our own backyard, there are some very serious needs, hunger needs. And so the food that y'all packed yesterday is going local to our ministry partners and all the various ones that we have. So there, there are so many things happening. The name of the church is Illuminate, in part because... Jesus said, a city that's on a hill, what? Can't be hidden, can't be hidden. And so the, the dream of this church from the beginning has always been, God, just will you bless us and let us be a gift to our city? Everybody around us, they might not agree with everything that we say, that we believe, that's, that's okay, that's okay. Hopefully they will. But at least we want them to say, well, I'm sure glad they're here and I love what they're doing. And so I just wanna thank you guys on behalf of the entire church family and the reputation of the church and for being the hands and feet of Jesus. So appreciate you for that. Um, like I say, I think, we, I think yesterday was like the first day that we're getting this rolling. And so if you stop by the table and see Pastor Scott, you can see all the different ways to get involved from there. So uh, today's a really special day also because we have some people that are gonna be baptized and we have some in each service, and so that's, that makes it special. But it's also kind of special because I, we're just not that good. We're not good enough to have the kind of foresight that only God can have. And so we, we try to map things out months in advance. So we nailed this day for baptisms, not knowing that the text actually speaks to baptism, okay? That happens all the time. We are like so unconsciously competent, you know what I'm saying? You know what I mean by that? I'll be the first to say it. We're the most unconsciously competent church around. That's, I think, because we, the Holy Spirit gets credit for that. You know what I'm saying? So here's the deal. We're gonna be in Romans chapter six. We're gonna cover the first 14 verses. Romans six, seven, and eight get pretty gnarly. <laughs> it requires a little extra study on my part. It describes our problem, humanity, God's solution. Uh, the text this morning is the beginning of that, sort of the, the, the depth of the outworking of that. So it is for those who feel stuck in this cycle of sin, confess, sin, repent, sin, repent, it's for those who feel that they're, they're, maybe they've lost hope in terms of their own spiritual maturity, growing in their faith. For those who think, am I ever going to, am I always going to battle with this? Am I always going to uh, uh, give in 
to these any particular vices that you might be predisposed to. Uh, it's for those who have, who have ever asked, what, what has Jesus ever done for me? So the Apostle Paul has been writing about the grace of God in Romans chapter five. And he uses such beautiful language there. And, and grace, remember, is that uniquely Christian concept. You don't see it in other worldviews or faiths. You just don't. Grace is God's unmerited favor. And he makes this crazy statement. He says, as often as we sin, God's grace is there for us. It never ends. And um, it, he, he, there's this languaging that he uses, and it's so descriptive. It's like he, he says it's grace upon grace. And I said last week that that phrase used outside of the Bible, the same kind of phraseology, the same kind of languaging in Greek literature was used to describe the waves of an ocean. They never stop. They all, they're just one rolls in. I'm like, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. And they never stop coming in. That's necessary because what Paul is about to speak to is sin that requires an abundant amount of grace. And he says, it's there for you. It's there for you. Uh, he concludes chapter five in this way. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Trespass is another word for sin, but a little more specific in that a trespass is, is something that is known. It's known because it's, it's written in written form. Like a no trespassing sign. Do not trespass. Okay, you trespass, you know you've broken the law because it's spelled out for you. Now the law, when we think of the law, think of God's commands here in the Old Testament. That's the, book, the Bible that Jesus would have read from. So the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, because that's the natural consequence of sin, the wages of sin is death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Sin leads to death, but grace leads to eternal life. And that is found in only one person, one name, only one name under heaven by which a person can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And he has the street cred because if you come back from the dead, the microphone is yours, the spotlight is yours. We wanna hear what you have to say. The law being God's moral command shows us clearly is what Paul's saying. Everybody is without excuse. No one can say, well, I'm just uncertain as to exactly what God requires of me. Well, no, it's spelled out for you. It's there, it's there in black and white. You can't say you don't know, it's there. And so in that sense, since it is spelled out, nobody has an excuse. In that sense, where the law exists, sin increases because we know it to be sin. Okay, that's what he's talking about. But he also says, that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Why? Well, it makes sense. The more you sin, the more you need a covering for that sin. The more grace you need. Think of it this way. You have this set of scales. And on one scale, you have the weight of your sin. And you're buried under that weight. You're underneath that scale and you can't move. The weight of your sin has buried you. Well, not to counterbalance, but to counteract. We're not talking about counterbalance. We're talking about counteract. The amount, the weight of your sin, you have to have a heavier amount of what? Grace. See, see what he's saying? That's what he's saying. Now, that's true. 
And you need to believe that. God is just that good. He's that gracious. When, you, when Jesus is described, cool descriptions of Jesus, he was, he was, he's described as someone who is full of what? Grace and truth. And you see this manifest itself in, in, in his life. So now, Paul is a brilliant thinker inspired by the spirit of God. And he, as he does in the past, he anticipates an imaginary objector. Right? Now, if you're just reading the text as it's in its original form, this just jumps off the page. The flow is there. We've added chapters and verses in order to help us get where we want to be. It wasn't there originally. So you can see how he ends chapter five talking about this abundant grace, and then he's like, now wait a minute, I know what someone might be thinking. And so from the very next, you got it as chapter six, verse one. Again, not those numbers weren't there in the original. And the, the flow of thought is just right there. It's just like the stream that's just moving along. And so he says, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are gonna think something. And so he introduces this imaginary objector. Inevitable question is raised. Chapter six, verse one, Paul raises it. So what are we to say then in light of this abundant grace? Should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? In other words, he's saying, logically, on one level, it kind of makes sense. If God has to supply grace every time we're sin, and grace certainly makes God look good, then why wouldn't I wanna sin more so that God looks even better by having to supply all the grace that I need and more for all the wrongs that I commit. Why not do that? Uh, well, you might be thinking, well, that's a ridiculous argument. <laughs> uh, who could possibly believe that? What church would support that? Well, we have an example of one. The time of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. People will often say to me, I, you know, I just wanna get back to a first century church. No, you don't. <laughs> Please, read your Bible. You don't wanna be a first century. You be a first century church? You'd be like taking communion and the dude next to you was like, this stuff's great, can I have another? They're taking communion shots in church. And people are like, what vintage is this? I don't know, like AD 10. It's great, more. So the church in the reason why we have several epistles, letters in the New Testament is because the church had it doctrinally wrong. And so, so the apostles have to write and say, oh, here comes another letter. <laughs> Here's what you need to know. This is why leadership in the church, elders, they need to be able to teach the word because so much of what you have in your Bibles is a result of errant teaching. A lot of popular voices now, we can just straight up call them heretics, okay? Because you get the Bible here, and you, it's, like, it's like, it's always best to be like, here, thus saith the Lord, rather than let me tell you what I think. Anytime the guy moves out from behind the Bible and starts speaking, and he says, here's what I'll tell you, be forewarned, okay? So this is what was happening back in the day. And so there's this church in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a notoriously wicked city. To Corinth, Simon, to act like a Corinthian, it meant to basically live a, a life filled with vices. It is actually reported, so this is a letter that would be an open letter to the church. Imagine having this being read to you. 
uh, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Does that happen in the church? And of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, somewhat quasi-incestuous relationship, his stepson, stepmom. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? You should be weeping over what's going on under the banner of the Jesus community. So Paul's like, I'll tell you what I, I'll, I would do with him. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So this church thought, what an excellent display of Christian liberty and freedom we have. Now, it's a very young church. They were trying to get their theology right, okay? So we're not gonna hold too much against them. But this one, they got dead wrong. Look at the Christian liberty and freedom that, that, that we have. And Paul says, no, there's sin in the camp, and it has to be dealt with. And so it shows two things. Number one, you have some bad doctrine, bad theology. And then number two, what it shows that you have good leadership. You don't have spiritual leadership in that church. Rasputin was a monk, a Russian monk, who believes and taught that Christians should sin as often as possible. Look the dude up, Rasputin. He believed that Russian monk believed that Christians should sin as often as possible, so that they can. They, there's this ongoing joy that can be experienced when coming to God and receiving His grace. This is the mentality that Paul is addressing. Shouldn't we sin more so that God's grace could abound more? Therefore, he'll look better. His answer, verse two, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? To die to something means it's no longer active or alive in you. Now he's about to give you the cure. It begins with a specific knowledge and understanding. Scriptures say, as a man thinks, so he is. Verse three, do you not know? Understand this, have this knowledge that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. That's an interesting, that's interesting language. We want life, we're baptized into his death. Why would you wanna be baptized into someone's death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as, this is why Christians are so hung up on the resurrection, man, it all comes back to it. Just as Christ, which means Messiah, that's Jesus, was raised from the dead by the glory, the glory, what glory is that which you manifest about yourself? That's power, resurrection power. God's flexing with Jesus' death and says, look at the power that I have, bring back from the dead. Dead by the glory of the Father. So that we too might walk in newness of life. If you wanna live a victorious Christian life, as they say, then it begins with a knowledge of who you are. And, let me use a buzzword from our time, nothing new, Bible is incredibly relevant. What it's talking about is your identity. Do you know who you are, Christian? Do you know who you are? This is the language of identity from Paul's time the metaphor of baptism. Baptism is an identity. You might already know. In Paul's day, a cloth or a garment 
would be dipped or baptizo into a dye. And as a result, the cloth would absorb the dye and it would become identified now with a new color. So formerly, the cloth being white is now, after being baptized, it is now identified with a different color, whatever that color is that it's been dipped in. So do you see what he's saying? So it is with you and Jesus' death. You are now identified with the death of Jesus, but not just the death, also the burial and the resurrection. Why? So that you can be identified in a new way. In the previous chapters, Paul said, we are all born with this identification in Adam. That's a big problem. <laughs> That's a big problem. That's why the world's jacked up. Because in the same way that we have, we have, we all have arms, we have legs, we have faces, we have mouths, eyes, and ears. Where do we get all that? We got it from the first progenitor. We got that from Adam. But we also inherited his sinful nature, his disposition. That was our identification. That's our identification by birth. Now, Paul says, Christian, you now shed that identity and you're being identified with Jesus. Old life in Adam is gone. New life in Christ has arrived. This is why in Matthew 20, 18, when Jesus sends the disciples out, what does he say? He says, go and baptize them in the name. To name something is to have authority over it. That's why in the beginning, God says, go ahead and name the animals, Adam. And Adam's like, oh, I get it. That's a form of authority. I have authority over creation. God's like, that's right. I created it for you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a new identity. If you haven't been baptized, by the way, these are your verses. I like to say, those who haven't been baptized have some unfinished business with God. It's about identity, identity change. He presses this point further in verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This word united is it's a, such a cool one. It's a symphotoi in the Greek. It's where we get our English word symphony. What is a symphony? It's a collection of instruments that come together and they play the same song, symphotoi. Now, in Paul's day, symphotoi was a botanical term and it was often used to describe branches or vines that grew together so tightly they could not be separated. And so there's this really vivid imagery he's laying down. It's like, it's the death, burial, and resurrection. When you identify with that, it's like these branches get sent forth and they wrap around the Christian community and bind us together. They bind us together. And the thing that now unites us is a new identity. Now it's a new life, not according to the life pattern of Adam, but according to the life pattern of Jesus. Galatians chapter three, verse 27, Paul describes it this way. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have, you have put on Christ. You wear Christ around you wherever you go. And the reason why this is so important, and we talked about this, I think, uh, a couple years ago when we were working through the book of Genesis. This is why identity is so important. You will function based on how you identify. <laughs> you will. You will function based on how you identify. And the way you identify, what I'm saying is the way you think about yourself, the way you come to understand who you are defines what you do. So I think I've shared this before when I was a little boy. My mom loved playing this game with me. Just, I was just a little, little guy. And she would chase me around the house. 
And eventually she would catch me and she would sweep me up in her arms and she'd squeeze me tight and she'd say, I don't let sweet little boys go. I don't let them go. And she would smother me with kisses and I'd squirm and I'd try to get away and she'd just squeeze tight. She had that mama strength. You know what I'm saying? When kids are in mom's arms, there ain't nothing gonna get between that, you know? What was she doing? She was creating an identity for me. You're loved. You're lovable. You're loved. You know what, Jason, you're loved for who you are. Not a lot of people can say that. You know, where do you think that begins? It begins with someone showering love on your grace, mercy, forgiveness. And then you come to see yourself as the way in which you identify. And then you begin to act based on your identity. So as a little kid growing up, I'm like, I'm loved. I didn't necessarily have this deep need to go out and do something stupid to feel like I had to have the appreciation or the applause or the love of other people because I already had it. I already knew it. See, that's why identity is so important. And so that's why you say, you're, what, you're doing stupid things. Well, look, that's not part of your stupidity is not your identity anymore. It was. It was your nature. Here's what you don't know. Here's what you're not thinking about. You've been identified with Jesus is death, burial, and resurrection. That's your new identity. When my, uh, years ago, years ago, he's, he's much older now, he's approaching 30 now, but my oldest son, when he was in elementary school, he, uh, he, he had signed on to do something. He bit off a lot, <laughs> a little bit more than, than the guy could chew, at least he thought. He committed to do something. He, was, he had the lead role in a school play. Right before the play was about to happen, he comes up to Jill and I with this terrified look on his face and he's like, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. Now, the place is filling up with people, parents, and, and your kid comes running up to you, and he's like, I'm not going to do this. Now, in that moment as a parent, there's something in you, there's a part of you that wants to alleviate any pain and suffering that your kid has. But then there's this other part that says, no, 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 wait a minute, teachable moment. Let me speak to your identity. We don't quit. <laughs> We keep our word. You are a hard worker. You know your lines. You've memorized them. You can do this. We're not going to let these people down. You made, a, you made a commitment. And since we keep our word, you're going to have to enter into a difficult space. Now, if, if he was up here, maybe someday we'll bring him up here, we'll tell the story side by side. I'm mostly right in how I tell it. <laughs> he'll, give you the, he'll give you the gory details. That's what kids do for you. <laughs> so, but he would tell you, he'll, he still remembers that to this day. You know, and that has served him well. What is that? That's You see what I'm getting at? You see what Paul is getting at? This is identity. Who do you think you are? The Bible defines that for you. Root your identity in Christ. Live out of it. This is very profound. So he gives a great summary of this in Galatians chapter two. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I, so it's no longer I who live. So what he's saying is, it's not my will, it's not my desires, it's not my pride, it's not my ambition, it's not my goals. He's subjecting those things to Christ who lives in me. It's the life of Jesus lived through you. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God. That's trusting that Jesus will lead me well. And, and here's how I know he will, because he loved me 
and he gave himself up for me. That's identity. So practically speaking, here's what it means, verse six. So we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what's happening to you. You're, you're, you're enslaved by it. The thing you think is gonna give you freedom is the thing that you now serve mercilessly. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Interesting, because what, what he's, he's connecting something here. He immediately applies this to what you and I do with our bodies. Isn't that interesting? He's like, here's the point. Here's who you are in Christ. Now, let's talk about this. What are you doing with your body? What are you doing with your hands? What are you seeing with your eyes? What are you speaking with your tongue? We had these bodies that operated in sin because they were identified with Adam. Now there's an identity transfer. Now it's in Jesus. Jesus didn't serve sin, so neither should we. Further evidence, verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. As a look to the future, obviously, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Jesus will never be subjected to death again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died to sin was once for all. And now, in the mind of these Jewish readers, they're like, dying for sin once for all? Wait, what? Because they knew the Old Testament sacrificial system. So it was one sacrifice after another. So it was death, 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 more death. All these animals were coming forward and being offered as a sacrifice. And so he says, no, Jesus' death was once for all because in his person was perfection so he could take the sins of the world upon himself, dying once for all sins. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So two important things Paul wants to know, wants you to know here when it comes to overcoming the sin in your life. Number one, you you have this incredible identity. This is what's gonna cause you to function. And because Jesus has conquered sin, you can actually be set free from it. Now, let's put this whole thing together. How do we make, how do we make this work? What is the practical application of everything we've been talking about so far? Because sometimes it can be theoretical. Verse 11, he tells you. So you must also consider, again, it goes back to a mindset, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this word before. He uses it a number of times. Consider is an accounting term. It literally means to put on deposit. Two things have been put on in your deposit, in your account. Number one, Because of Jesus, you're dead to sin. Number two, you are alive in Christ. Same word, at the same time, this word consider has a more modern context. If you consider yourself dead to sin, um, you might have some uh, problem or some issue with someone in your life and, and they've really, maybe they've hurt you, they've wronged you, and you just wanna have nothing to do with them. So you might say something like, that person is dead to me. They're dead to me. What you're saying is they don't even exist. I don't even think about it. Consider yourself dead to sin. It doesn't exist in you anymore. You don't even think that way. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Because if you do, you're gonna become obedient. You're gonna become a slave. When it has its desires rise up within you, it's just leading you to the slaughter to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law. You don't have to prove yourself. It's not about doing all the things in order to make God smile. The motivation for godly living is actually right here, grace, grace. Here's how it manifests itself in my life 
when I get it right. If I'm tempted to say something about someone that I shouldn't, I tell myself, Jason, you're not a gossip. That is not who you are. Who you are is someone who speaks words of life to others. Jason, you do not sexualize women. You don't do that. That's not who you are. No, instead, Jason, you know who you are? Because of your association with Christ, you wanna help all people understand their incredible value worth and significance as being created in the image of God and therefore worthy of the utmost respect. That's what you use your mouth to do. That's what you use your eyes for. You look for those people that you can speak and breathe life into. Jason, you're a truth teller. You don't spout lies because you're not part of that family because the father of lies is who? Who is a church? Okay, so kids act like family members. Kids act like mom and dad. So that's not my dad. Yeah, who's your daddy? Don't let it be Satan. See, this is all identity. This is, these, are fa- these are family issues. Now, what happens is the more <clears throat> you, uh, you practice, the more you apply the knowledge of who you are day in and day out, Sin becomes less of a stranglehold in your life. And it actually becomes easier for you to live the life of Christ day in and day out when you begin with the proper identity. So you can wake up in the morning. You wake up tomorrow morning. You might face some particular temptation. It might be some, you might have some discord with the spouse. And immediately you're thinking, subconsciously, I'm the person that has to be defensive. I'm the person that has, whose will has to be known and done. No, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. And then what happens is, anytime you apply the word of God in obedience, you experience the, the favor and the blessing of God on your life. Sin doesn't dominate you anymore. You have to know that and believe that. So when I was younger, uh, one of my first jobs, I had a boss that, it's not my brother. I know some of you know that I work for my brother. I'm not talking about him. When I was younger, I had a boss that, that would, um, he would intentionally try to intimidate the employees. Very domineering and overbearing. And employees were quitting all the time. Couldn't stand this guy. They feared him. And so eventually I quit. <clears throat> and one day, I, I was at a restaurant, and I saw him. I saw him sitting at a table, and he was with his family. And I got real nervous inside. You know, I got triggered. And, and so the hostess led me, and I was with my family. I was actually meeting some friends there. They were already sitting at the table. And, and I, was, I was nervous for about two seconds. And then I realized, I don't work for him anymore. And then I kind of got like, I don't work for you anymore. <laughs> so then I walked right up to his table. And I stared at him. 
don't, uh, this is wrong. I shouldn't have done it. This is, this is the bad part of the story. This is the fleshly part. This is the don't do. I'm getting to the point. And I stared at him. And in my mind, I'm like, you have no control. You have no power. You have no authority over me, you little man. So it is with sin. You have no claim on me. You have no authority. You have absolutely no power. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. You see what Paul's saying? Now, we're just, <laughs> we're just in the first 14 verses of chapter six. I forewarned you, this is six, seven. You get to chapter seven, you're like, Paul gets brutally honest with his own struggle. And that's, there's, that's like, there's the battle. Then chapter eight is this incredible, the whole chapter is victory. But what a great way to set it up. First 14 verses, Christian, know who you are. Function based on your identity. Father, too good. This, 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 this is too good, it's too rich. It's, it's a, a yet another expression and measure of your good grace in our lives. I pray for every person in this room as I've been praying all week, starting with myself. Daily, minute by minute, moment by moment, Paul says we take every, cop, every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Lord, I ask that the words of this text would sink deeply within our hearts and souls. We would leave here differently. We would leave here with a, a renewed sense that we don't have to be bound up anymore. It's all a matter of whose we are. And you've made that so abundantly clear. We're grateful for that. Father, I'm grateful for uh, my brother Rick, for his testimony, what he's going to share, for the fact, the reminder that you transform lives. That's what you're in the business of doing, God. It's a total privilege to be able to be at least in some small way a part of what you're doing. Grateful for that, Lord. Just pray that you would bless Rick as he shares. I pray that you would bless us as we leave this place, having understood words that bring life. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. God's people said.